You can be seated. Thank you, Randy. In case you didn't know, like normally, there's a bumper video and the lights go out and then when you come up, it's like there's a podium here. That's the guy. <laughs> so if you ever were like, how does that happen? It just appears. That's the guy. I just ruined the magic for somebody in this room. I don't know who. So if you have your Bible this morning, go ahead and go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We have been going verse by verse through 1 Thessalonians. Remember, this is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Thessalonica. And he was encouraging them because he had heard a lot of good things about them. He loved this church. He actually was run off for preaching the gospel because it wasn't accepted or popular in the area region in which he was preaching it. And so these people were the minority. They were living amongst a culture that was very much anti-Christ, that was highly uh, um, thriving and indulging, rather, in uh, worship in a way that was highly sexually immoral. And it was just the normal thing to do in that culture. And here is this group of Christians that grew up um, in this culture, and they're thinking this is the right way. Then Paul preaches Christ, and now they're learning how to please Christ. And it's very much anti the direction that the culture is going. It's like this big, huge current that's just going this one direction, and they're trying to turn about face and go the other direction. And it's very challenging because this is affecting and impacting all of the little nuances in their lives. It's impacting where they can do business, where they can shop, um, their jobs, their livelihoods. It's literally impacting and threatening um, their, their, their very existence within this social culture. And so the pressure is to give into the culture and find compromises so that I can be accepted in culture, or do I stand for Christ and let the consequences be what they may because I have found such value in Christ. But yet I'm supposed to be loving towards these people who are very much against the Christ, the God that I'm serving and and the way that I'm trying to live. So how do I function in this environment? And Paul wrote this letter to encourage them and also to tell them the things you're doing. They're really good. I'm proud of you for standing in the face of opposition. I'm proud of you for loving one another and all these things that you're doing, but I want you to continue to do it more and more. So more and more is the title of my sermon uh, this morning. And in chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians, Paul begins to close his letter to the church after he spent the first portion exhorting and celebrating their faith in spite of the immoral uh, worship culture and the majority of the people, they would just call that normal everyday living. So it wasn't like these people are going, oh yeah, we're super wicked. No, they thought this is normal. This is what everyone just does. And so because he was run out of Thessalonica for preaching Jesus, he didn't get as much time to answer questions as they would like because now these people who've just received this message of the gospel, they've got tons of questions. So Paul is trying to do his best with the time that he has with them to answer all the questions, and he didn't get to really help them. So that's why in chapter 3, verse 10, he tells them, I want to supply that which is lacking in your faith. He's basically saying the stuff I didn't get to teach you that you guys were asking me about. I'm wanting to now write and address some of those things, but man, I'd much rather be with you face-to-face because you guys know how much I love you. And that's what he communicated to them through this letter. He's about to do a little bit of that an association with the culture and how to live within that. And he's also going to bring clarity to how to navigate brotherly love as a Christ follower because the Greeks despised manual labor. They thought that manual labor was for slaves. 
And if you were a person that had to work and earn a living by the sweat of your brow and do a lot of manual labor, you weren't a part of this upper echelon philosopher, you know, these people that are trying to live, you know, kind of in this more haughty way. These were the people that were more uh, appreciated and, and looked at as a higher social status. And so they wanted to avoid manual labor. So that was part of the deal. But the other thing is that they knew Christ was coming back. And because they knew Jesus was coming back, they wanted to just actively wait and just watch for Christ's return. And they thought, well, since we're waiting for Christ's return, let's just quit our jobs, right? And then they thought that the wealthier Christians should just support them and take care of them. So they actually would look to the wealthier Christians as, hey, we don't have enough money to be able to provide for our families, but we're kind of waiting on Jesus to come back. So, hey, how about you help a brother out a little bit, you know? And that was kind of the attitude. So Paul is actually addressing that attitude as well because he wants to clarify what it means to love. And they thought, well, if you love us, we're supposed to love each other. You're supposed to support me. And Paul says, that's not quite what love means. So he clears that up. And he also wraps up this letter by answering questions that deal with eschatology, which is just a word that we use in Bible study for end times or last things. So today we're going to read through verse 12 of chapter 4, and he begins to deal with eschatology in verse 13 of chapter 4, but he also deals with eschatology all throughout chapter 5. So we're going to do that next week, so you'll hear that message next week. So that's why we're stopping a little earlier, so that way we can keep all of that together. But this week, we're going to talk about growing more and more in these things that Paul encourages the Thessalonians to grow in. So with that in mind, let's read 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 1. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God just as you're doing, that you do this more and more. For you know that what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, and that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, do this more and more. And to aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. So he's giving them the, these instructions before he starts talking about the end times, and he's wanting them to understand that God calls his people to live according to a higher standard. He's been reiterating this message throughout this letter, but he really draws a few specifics and begins to drive this message home that when you follow Christ, you are called to live a higher standard. All throughout the Bible, whether the Old Testament or the New Testament, God always has this thing where he reserves for himself a people who are separate from the way that everyone else wants to go. Everyone is going one way. God says, I'm going to call to myself this people, this holy people, to live according to my statutes and my ways. 
And they are to be an example to the world to show the difference of what living for God looks like, of pleasing God, of how to honor God with our lives and what that looks like. He's always called us to a different standard as people who are following Jesus. And then Jesus even takes some of the interpretations of the standard that his people were following. He takes it to a whole new level where Jesus would say, you've heard it said, do it this way. But I say to you, I'm taking it to a whole new level where it's actually about your heart. And Jesus even takes that to a different level. We see all throughout the New Testament, Paul exhorting the churches and, and correcting the churches and telling them this is how you're called to live in spite of persecution, in spite of challenges, in a sexually immoral culture or in face of opposition or in face of a threat that may be in front of you. This is the difference that you're called to live in because God always calls us people to a higher standard. There is an ethical expectation to receive in Christ. But what does it mean to truly have received Christ? What does that mean? Well, we receive Christ when we receive doctrine and truth about Christ. So yes, some people will say, I've heard about Christ. That's good. You, you, you received that message but others would say, I've personally received Christ because Scripture also says that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. So if I've heard the Word of God, if I've heard that truth, if I've heard those biblical doctrines about Christ, then I need to respond. And so my response, yes, is receiving Christ. But then there's also a receiving Christ that where we begin as followers of Jesus to adjust our lifestyle to emulate Christ-like living and eternal values. Because receiving Christ means we're all in. Like, I am all in. I'm all into this thing. I'm not just going to say, well, I did this or I did that, so I'm good. Some people would like to say, well, I received Christ because I heard about Jesus. Well, that's good. I received Christ because I, I went through catechism or I was baptized or whatever the case may be or, or, I, or I did communion. That's great. All of those things are good, but we can't just say because I've done this, I'm done receiving Christ. I've received Christ. I did all of the things. It's not about doing these things. It's about a life and a journey following Jesus where he begins to work in us through Scripture, through his Holy Spirit in us, on this journey that's called sanctification, where we are beginning to grow in Christ's likeness, where we are beginning to emulate Christ's values and also eternal things that matter more, and it begins to impact and change the way that we live. So if we say that we've received Christ, but our life isn't actively changing and we don't look any different, my question is, have we really received Christ? Because you can't just receive this one part and go, yeah, I know how to do it. I know I, I did the thing. No, it's not about doing a thing. It's not about raising your hand. It's not about repeat after me. It's about a lifestyle that I am committed, that I have found such value in Christ that yes, I heard the doctrine. Yes, I followed the steps. Yes, I've done these things, but I am still following him to this day and he's still changing me to reflect the glory of God in me and through me by the things he's calling me to say yes to and the things that he's calling me to say no to as well. It's about receiving Christ all the way, not just in part. This is how we truly encounter Christ. This is how we truly grow in holiness and Christ's likeness as a people of faith. We should be growing in our faith, our doctrine, our lifestyle as long as we live. This is our worship. 
This is our surrender, and this is how our hearts get reoriented to love the things that God loves. Because a person who has found value in Christ, a person who has found worth in Jesus Christ, they will want to grow in these things. Romans chapter 12 and verse 1, the Apostle Paul says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, or I plead with you, I beg you, on behalf of the mercies of God, in light of the mercies of God, or as a response to the mercies of God, that you would present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable. It is your reasonable act of worship. In other words, your response to the goodness of God should be, Lord, you can have it all. Your will, not my will. Your ways, not my ways. If you're calling me to a higher standard, Lord, I want to know what you value because you are so worthy. I want to value what you value. Because in response to what Christ has done, Romans 12, 1 says it just makes sense. It's a reasonable act of worship, a, an act of surrender, an act of sacrifice. That means, that means I'm willingly and knowingly inconveniencing myself and saying no to things that maybe everyone else around me is saying yes to. And I'm knowingly and willingly saying yes to things everyone else is saying no and looking at me like I'm a fool because I'm saying yes to those things. When the world would want to criticize, when the world would want to ostracize and push me away and would want to discount me or pressure me, I still say yes to the things that please God because I'm living to please God and I'm learning what pleases God and I'm learning what eternity values and I'm learning what matters. That changes this whole idea of loving God, loving people, and serving the world. It's not just a cute little statement that we wanted to put on a big red wall so you can look and go, oh, that's neat. That'd make a good bumper sticker or t-shirt. It's we're loving God so that we can love what God loves. And when I look in Scripture, I can see what God loves. God loves people because God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. And so because I know God loves people, as I love God, I should grow in loving the things God loves. So I should grow in loving people too. As I love people, then I should, want, I should be compelled to serve them, to give them something, to want to love on them. And what do I have to give but the love of God that was given to me so they can experience the love of God through the way I treat them, through the way that they may encounter the love of God through my interactions with them so they can be pointed to loving God and loving people, and serving the world as well. Because Christianity is not a decision. It's a lifestyle of worship and sacrifice. It is a lifestyle. It's not just, a, oh, I did the thing, I checked the box, I'm good to go. Like, I did the thing, my name's on the list, right? So I'm just going to continue to do my own thing. No, there is supposed to be a change. There's supposed to be a, a, a constant changing in us as Christ begins to work in us and through us what brings Him pleasure and what brings Him glory through us learning the Scripture, through us learning how to serve Him, through us being strengthened in faith so that we can live a life. Yes, it will look different from the majority, and it should look different from the majority. Because people may go one way, they may value certain things, but the people of God are to value things that matter in eternity not the things that matter here just on the earth. Amen, church? But it's a lifestyle of worship. It's a lifestyle of sacrifice. In 1 Thessalonians 4 and 1, he says, how you ought to walk to please God. You've learned how you ought to walk. We've taught you how you ought to walk to please God. And then he reminds them of the temptations of their day. He says, listen, guys, I know there's a lot of temptations out there. 
But remember, you're called to be different. You're called to be set apart. I know it's the popular thing that everybody's doing. I know it's the popular mindset and pulse of the culture. But you're called to be different. So you're supposed to live in this society, in this system. He didn't say, well, you, you guys need to pack your bags and move out of there because them people's crazy. He said, no, you're supposed to, you're, you're staying where you're at. He didn't say, go and move and start your own club somewhere else. He didn't go say, build a fortress and start your own compound. <laughs> he said, no, you're supposed to live among these people. You're supposed to love them. I'm going to show you how to do it, but don't give in just because they want to say all of this is okay when it comes to these different areas that you've been called apart. You've been set apart. He says, First Thessalonians, let's read it again. Four, we'll read verse three through seven. Verse three says this, for this is the will of God for your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one would transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us to impurity, but in holiness. Let's read verse 8. He says, therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not just man. He says, it's not the Apostle Paul here that's like giving you this value that Paul has. It's not Paul sharing his personal thoughts. It's not Paul sharing his talking points. He said, you're actually disregarding God who gives us his Holy Spirit. So he's saying the Holy Spirit's actually trying to lead you and guide you into all truth. And the Holy Spirit is trying to lead you into the things that's going to please God. And you're just disregarding the Holy Spirit when you choose to disregard this command that I'm giving you to not be sexually immoral. So the word used for sexually immoral in the Greek is the word pornea. And you can guess what English word we get from that. We get the word pornography, which is referred to throughout Scripture as adultery, fornication, or any sexual acts outside the bounds of a heterosexual marriage. And if you want to read more of a complete list of the things that Scripture calls sexual immorality, you can read 1 Corinthians chapters 5 and 6 if you want a longer list of things. But our life is to be a living sacrifice to God, not a lifestyle where our hormones rule our decisions. Hello, somebody. I know I'm making you real comfortable. You see, if we're supposed to live a lifestyle that's a living sacrifice to God, part of that sacrifice is me recognizing there will be things that I'm tempted or that I want to do that no matter how good it may feel, no matter how much I may enjoy it, no matter how deep my desire is for it, I need to trust that what God says is better for me regardless of my feelings, regardless of what society may accept. I've heard people say, I just can't help myself. I deserve to be happy. God wants me to be happy, so it's okay if I pursue this relationship with another person while I'm married, right? And God wants me to be happy. I'm just not happy in my current marriage, so I'm just going to go and find someone else while I'm still married. Or it's okay if I just flirt on Facebook. It's just harmless flirting with an old high school fling. The easy option is just to say everybody's doing it, everybody's okay with it, and we can pursue being sexually active before marriage because, I mean, it's not that big of a deal. We're older anyways. Everyone's okay with it. 
we're both fine with it. Pornography really isn't hurting anyone. You know, it's, it's not that big of a deal. I just have these desires for the same sex, and I don't want to deny my feelings or my happiness. And we use these things as justification to give ourselves the green light to explore or indulge in sin when we're called to be set apart. We're called to please God. We will justify it. Or society says this is okay, or no one, no one thinks a big deal about it, or, or, I mean, none of us in here, hopefully someone else will hear this message, but we'll justify our sin by saying, well, at least I'm not as bad as this other person. I mean, this person's really a bad person, you know, or at least I'm not doing as bad as my, you know, brother, sister, my father, mother, at least I'm in church. And we'll say these types of things to justify these things that Scripture clearly calls sexually immoral when we're called to live apart. Yes, society may say all these things are normal. Society may say all these things are okay. But that doesn't mean that we get the green light to do whatever we want because the biggest part of sacrifice, listen to me this morning, the biggest part of sacrifice is saying no to the things you want to do. That's kind of what sacrifice is. If you don't want to do it and you give it up, you're not really giving up anything, are you? So therefore, there's no sacrifice involved. It's just me saying no to something I don't like to do. Kind of like when those friends invited you over for dinner and you really didn't want to go. And then, like, all of a sudden, you know, you tell them, I can't go. It's not really a sacrifice. The sacrifice would be to go, not to say no. It's an easy out. We go, oh, no, I, I can't make it. Uh, I got to wash the dog or whatever. And we'll make excuses. And, and, and I think a lot of times we'll say no to things that we feel are easy for us to say no to. But what about the things that we want to do? What about the things that are hard to say no to? What about the things that are easy to justify? Because that's where the sacrifice comes in. I, listen, I know that the desire may be there. I know that you may want to do those things. But can I lovingly tell you that if Scripture and God, if God is telling us either through His Word or His Holy Spirit to stay away from these things, the sacrifice is saying no to the thing that you may have a desire to do or a desire to justify. But just because you have a desire to justify it does not make it okay. Justifying any sin is worshiping yourself. And the reason that you want to say no to these things is because you have found someone greater you want to please other than yourself. Oh, I'm going to say that again. Somebody was sleeping. The reason you say no to these things is because you have found someone greater you want to please other than yourself. It's easy to say yes to the things that I want to do for me. It's harder to say no, especially when it seems so easy in the world that we live in. And that goes for all sin, not just sexual immorality. But I want to talk to you today if you are a person struggling with sexual sin of any kind, I want you to know that God loves you. And you do not have to live in bondage to that sin. With most people, it takes time to find freedom from the temptations. It does take time. Because the desires and sometimes walking away from sexual sin, sometimes it comes with great cost. And that's the hard part. Because other people, when they're involved, they may not understand why you're deciding to follow God and wanting to please God because you were okay with all of this before. Why are you 
all of a sudden not okay with it. I, I've spoken to people who've walked away from relationships that they were sexually active outside of marriage, and it cost them the relationship because they tried to go to the person that they were sleeping with and say, hey, this is sin. We, we can't do this anymore. Like, God's convicting me about this. This isn't right. And the other person was like, well, if we're not going to be able to do this or you think you're better than me, I, I don't want to be in a relationship with you anymore. And it cost them the relationship. Sometimes I've talked to couples who have had to go through a lot when the spouse will finally confess and say, hey, I've been looking at pornography. And the other spouse feels betrayed and, and just hurt and wounded. And, and it causes a strain and a hard thing for that couple to walk through. But can I tell you that freedom in Christ is much better than indulging and trying to hide or walk around with guilt and shame? Can I tell you that freedom in Christ is better than all of that? Freedom in Christ is better than you indulging in the thing that you've been indulging in. Christ is better than that man or woman that you think you need in your life in order to be happy. Can I tell you Christ is enough? If the whole world rejects you, if the whole world abuses you, hates you, and you're loved by Christ, that is enough? I know it's tough, and I know that if you're no longer okay with justifying your sin and you want to live to please, and you want to live to please God, and you're tired of justifying your sin, your church family is here to help you walk through the steps that it will take. For you to find freedom. You're not alone. Can I say that again? You are not alone. It's, it's funny to me when people come to me for counseling or will talk to me about things and they'll say, they'll feel really shamed about the thing that they're struggling with and they almost don't want to say it because they're thinking, pastor might kick me out of the church if I share with him what I'm, what I'm, what I'm doing or what I'm going through. And when they do, I always just try to reassure them, listen, you are not alone. You're not the only person in our church that may have dealt with this challenge or may have struggled with this. You're not the only person who may uh, feel the way that you feel or who may be addicted to the thing you're addicted to or, or feels the way you feel to, or makes the decisions. that you, you, You're not alone. You're not the only person. But the biggest lie of the enemy that I believe that he wants to get you to believe is that when you're struggling with sexual sin, that you're the only one and you can't tell anybody because if you told someone "Ooh, what would they think of you they wouldn't like you anymore they wouldn't welcome you anymore Psh. no can i tell you that we all are dealing with sin at some level in our lives all and, and god god's not happy about any of the sin he's not happy about my sin he's not happy about your sin we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of god isn't that what scripture says but I need to know that I'm not alone. And I think the enemy wants you to feel isolated so you'll continue to struggle instead of seek someone that will love you, someone who will treat you the way that God wants us to treat one another by living a lifestyle of Christ-likeness that's going to bring healing from wounds of your past where other people have let you down, where other people have abused you, where other people have neglected you, where other people have hurt you. Let me tell you, Christ will fill that hole in your heart and will set you free and will alleviate this burden from you if you will trust in him. Just don't let fear hold you back from taking a step towards Christ. I just want you to know that you're loved and you're not alone.
But if you're a person here today or watching online that you want to defend sexual immorality, and right now maybe you're angry, maybe you're mad at me right now, I want to tell you something. I love you, and God loves you. But I do pray that your heart is softened and your eyes are open to the truth of Scripture. To serve God without making excuses for Him and what He says in His Word. Because I don't want to serve a God that I have to take His holy word and I have to alter it to fit my desires. I want to serve a God that I can read clearly in Scripture who He says He is, and I go, yes, sir. If that's how you, if that's who the real God is, that's the God I want to serve. I don't want to make God in my own image by tweaking God and tweaking Scripture to fit my day and my culture. I'm going to let the Scripture speak for itself, and I'm going to let God reveal to me who He is and that's the responsibility that I have is to teach his scripture the way that he wrote it without making excuses for God. And so God, how do I please you? How do I grow in loving you and loving people and serving others with that love who are in this world that are caught up in the sway, that are caught up in the current that you're wanting to rescue, that are being led away to death, that are being led away to hopelessness, that you're wanting to rescue and pull out of that current that they may be in. So we need to let God's Word show us who He is, what He values, so we can live free and at peace, healed and whole because of Jesus. And God wants us to be free from this stuff because He who the Son has set free is free indeed. Amen, church? Let's read the rest of this here. In verse 9, he says, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. He's saying, listen, you don't need to be taught about this. You don't need an instruction manual on how to love each other. You've already been taught by God because you've received the truth from God. You've received the love from God. And it's not just for you. You see, we got to get over this idea in Christianity that if I get something from the Lord, it's for me. So I can just be tanked up, just filled up. I can be so knowledgeable and I can just be so full of God, and I can just have all this great experiences, full of the Holy Ghost, full of, full of the Word, full of knowledge, full of all this stuff. Yeah, but if you're just full and ineffective, you're wasting your time, because you should be poured into so you can be poured out of. Amen? Because anything that gets poured into, it may be good when it gets poured into, but if it never pours out, it gets stagnant. It gets stagnant. It gets old. It just sits there. You can't live on the, 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 the pouring of the past. I need to be poured into so I can be poured out of. So that means I'm a conduit, not a container. That means that whatever God does in me, it's not just for me. Because it's not about you. It's about His glory. And when I have received Christ and begin following Christ... I am now a vessel. I am now a container. I'm now a conduit. I am now this person that God wants to use for His glory to be poured out on the world. With what? With His love, with His truth, with Christ's likeness in my living, in my walk, so that my receiving Christ begins to impact the world around me. I can begin to live like eternity really matters. So he says, this thing you've been doing, loving each other, he says, brothers, in verse 10, do this more and more. Verse 11, he says, aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs. Man, that's a sermon right there. Mind your business, right? 
and work with your hands as we instructed you. See, he's saying, yeah, you guys work with your hands. We just read that and glaze over it. They would have said, work with my what? My hands. <laughs> Verse 12, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and what? And be dependent on no one. So he's, listen, I want you guys to live with such a high level of integrity. Yeah, but everyone else is doing this. Yeah, I don't care. I want you guys to be willing to work with your hands. Don't just sit around waiting for Jesus to come back. And you're saying, well, my brothers are supposed to love me and take care of me. He's like, no, work with your hands. We told you this. Do so so that you may walk properly before those who are outsiders. Those who don't know what Christ is all about. They're looking at you going, these people are doing something different. These people don't mind doing this. These people are, are treating each other differently. These people are treating me differently. And then they begin to see something else in their lives. So he's telling them, listen, guys, love other people without strings attached. Love those who are on the outside. Set the example. Set the tone. Paul says to do this, he said, more and more. As you're loving one another, as you're loving those who are on the outside, he said in all of Macedonia, he said, do this more and more. The people didn't want to do anything difficult. They just wanted to sit around and wait for Jesus to come back. Waiting for Jesus' return is not permission to be idle. It's not for us to be lazy and isolated. I'm just going to keep my little Christian group over here, and we're just not going to go out and try to do anything, and we're just going to kind of be quiet, keep to ourselves, do our thing. No, waiting on Jesus' return is not permission to be idle. It's not for us to be lazy. Waiting for Jesus' return is an active waiting, living our lives, working, loving on those among our fellowship and those outside of it. This lifestyle of worship, this lifestyle of sacrifice is part of us walking properly before outsiders, showing others that we have found value in Christ in our everyday lives. Because anyone can show up for an hour and 15 minutes and come and sing a few songs and listen to somebody talk and go, I did my God time. But what happens the rest of the days and the hours and the minutes of the week? What does our life reflect that we value? You see, if we value Christ, it begins to change us. We begin to see the truth of God, and we begin to say, you know what? There's sacrifices that I have to make. There's things I have to say no to. There's things I have to say yes to because I want to please God. I don't want to justify. I don't want to make excuses, and I don't want to be chained down and bogged down to sin and things that displease God because I want to show the world that Christ matters to me. And I may not be perfect, and I may not have it all together, but I'm trying to live this life in order to please God, and it does change me. I've received Christ through doctrine. I've received Christ through my, my, my personal walk with Him. And I have received this difference that He's calling me to live. And I'm actively receiving this. I'm actively trying to live this thing out because Christ is worth it. It's easy to go with the flow. It's easy to get caught up in the current. But Paul's saying, standing up and living differently and living in a way that pleases God, yeah, it's tough. But I'm wanting to tell you, do this more and more. When it comes to loving each other, instead of sitting around, sitting on your hands, being, being idle, waiting for Jesus to come back, get active. Show others that you're not, you haven't checked out of life, that you're not in some little weird thing where it's just you and your weird friends waiting for Jesus to come back. You guys are still living among the people. Walk properly before those who are on the outside, he says. 
Show them that you still are, are, are trying to engage them and love them regardless of how they may respond to you. They, they, may, they may love you for it, they may hate you for it, but they're seeing something that matters to you. Because you say this Christ that you're following is important, your life should reflect that. Amen? What I believe all of this that we've talked about today boils down to is this. Do we value Christ more than anything? If we do, our lives will show it. The way we sacrifice, the way we abstain, the way we say yes, the way we say no, it'll show it. And we're not perfect. We all have our issues. We all have our challenges. We all have our hang-ups. We all have our things that God is working in our hearts about. But what is he calling you to say yes to today? What is he calling you to say no to today? Because whether that thing he's calling you to take action on may be saying yes to something or no to something, I can promise you this, it, it will be a sacrifice. And it will probably be hard. Because it's something that you've perhaps wanted to do or something you've been okay with entertaining in your life. But can I tell you that God wants you to be free? That God wants you to be walking in forgiveness and love and fellowship with other people and helping others to grow in freedom? Can I tell you that the burden that Christ gives, he said, my, my yoke is easy, my burden's light. So you don't have to carry around this junk anymore. But do you value Jesus more than you value getting your way or pleasing yourself? So what is God calling you to say no to today? What's he calling you to say yes to today? During this message, I hope you've taken some time to maybe reflect and allow the Holy Spirit to deal with your heart. And as you do this, maybe write some of those things down. Maybe you need to repent and ask for forgiveness from your pride, from your selfishness. Maybe some of you just need to let the arms of the Father wrap around you and love you right where you're at. If you need prayer at the end of this service, I'm going to ask our prayer team would just be available to pray for you because we just want to love you and be able to love on you and let you know that you're not alone. And if you're watching online, I don't want you to think you're exempt. I don't want you to think that just because you're sitting behind a desk of a computer or maybe you're streaming it on your phone or whatever the case may be that you're exempt, like, oh, that's just for the people that are in the room. No. Reach out to your chat moderator. Let them pray for you. Let them be able to help you. Let us be able to be a resource to you and love on you, even if you're just scrolling by and you just happen to watch just for a little bit. This may be a divine opportunity for God to get a hold of your heart like never before and cause an awesome change in you for his glory. And I promise you, when it's for his glory, it will eventually also be for your good. You just may not see it right now. Because it's hard to see it when we have to say no. Or when we have to say yes. When we have to sacrifice. Sacrifice never looks fun in the short term, does it? But when you have the vantage point of looking back on the long term, don't you see the sacrifice was worth it? We kind of can see this in your retirement account sometimes. Sometimes. If you've been giving a certain percentage of your check for a certain number of years... That small thing, man, you're like, man, it would have been easy. It would have been nicer to have that money. Would have been nicer to have that little bit of cash, you know. Oh, I shouldn't be putting that much into my retirement. But then when you look at it after a long period of time, you go, wow, how did all that get there? It, it's the same way. 
when it comes to a sacrifice. It's not easy. It would be nicer to have that now. But what do I need to say no to right now that I can look back? It may not be fun going through it for that season, but I promise you, you'll see it one day and you'll go, wow, God is so good. I'm so glad that he began to lead me by his Holy Spirit to make these sacrifices to say no to the things that are grieving his heart, but no to the things that are sin, instead of me saying just yes to get that temporary satisfaction. When I look back, it was difficult. I used to have a strong desire to do this, but when you look back, you go, man, this is so much better God's way. And when we begin to say no to the things God wants us to say no to, and we say yes to the things God wants us to say yes to, you know what you're really saying? You're saying, God, I'm trusting that your way and your values are better than mine, even if it doesn't feel like it or seem like it right at this moment. That's what you're saying. God, I'm trusting you, and that takes faith. Oh, we don't like it. We'd rather give in and just do what we want and justify it. But God says, if you'll trust me, you might not see it now, but you will see it one day, and when you see it, you will be so thankful for it. Trust that his way is better. His will is better. His desire for you is better than whatever thing the enemy is dangling in front of your face trying to get you to take a bite of that carrot. I promise you what God has is better. And I pray that you would say yes to him. And I pray that you would say yes to trusting in him. And that you would be free. And that you would know that freedom. Instead of knowing the shame and the hurt And the response to all of the neglect or the abuse or the mistrust or the burn bridges. Because I can't promise you that people are never going to hurt you again. Actually, the thing I could promise you is that people probably will hurt you again. I can't promise you that if you follow God that he's going to make everything just go away and everyone's going to treat you awesome. You're so great. No, it's going to be tough. There will be tough stuff. But can I tell you that he is worth it? He's worth it. So Lord, I thank you that you are worth it. I thank you that you are worth everything. So we present ourselves to you this day as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable before you, not because of us, but rather in spite of us, because of Jesus. That anything good that comes out of me is a response to the goodness of Christ and what he's done in me. So that you get all of the glory for it. Because it's not for me to get glory for, but Lord, it is all for you and all about you. We submit our will to you today as a church by saying, not our will, but your will. Teach us your ways Teach us to love other people as you've loved us. Help us to find freedom from the things that may want to hinder us and bog us down. And may we live in a way that brings honor and glory to you. May we be strong during the times of pressure. Help us to walk in freedom and newness of life in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.